0: Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. Hi everyone, this is Commons and Chronicles, and in this episode we're going to talk about, we're going to finish up the Chromatic Dragons. At least the ones uh, from Wizards of the Coast, and from TSR before them, obviously. In this episode, we are going to talk specifically about the Red Dragon. And the Red Dragon, I think rightfully, is the top of the tier in the Chromatic Dragons. I say rightfully because to for, for most people's introduction to Dungeons & Dragons, I feel, at least historically, it was the Red Dragon, right? Because that was on the Red Book, at least... Again, from my perspective, that's everyone's intro to Dungeons and Dragons, which I realize isn't true. It does seem, though, broadly speaking, that the red dragon was a very popular dragon to feature in D&D art. It was just kind of the de facto dragon. I feel I haven't done an overview of all artwork published by TSR and Wizards of the Coast, so I could be I could be in in invoking misinformation here. But from my impression. It was the red dragon that was kind of the D&D dragon. And that's as opposed to, I guess, as a kid, I remember dragons being primarily green. You think of movies like Pete's Dragon and, um, I don't know, whatever else is out there. It just seemed, it felt a lot of times like it was green dragons. Was, that was the color of dragons. d I remember really getting this impression that in Dungeons & Dragons world, dragons were red. I, I later, of course, learned that that there were other dragons in D&D, but the, 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 the intro for me to D&D, the, the dragons of D&D were the red ones. And and they are. They're, they're, they're the big ones. They're the, the main dragons, I would say, uh, in many ways. Red dragons, according to 3.5 lore, and we'll look at what 5e has to say about it as well, but they're uh, chaotic evil dragons. Their breath attack is fire, so they are the classic fire-breathing dragon and they sort of normalizing on a, um, for instance, an adult red dragon. We're looking at CR 14, and uh, hit points of 212. That's 17d12 plus 102 natural. AC 29, not easy to hit. They have spells, natural spell-casting abilities, and quite a few attacks. They've got the bite and claw, of course, but they also have a wing attack, they have a tail slap attack... And then, obviously, they, they breathe fire, so there's that. Now, if we turn to the 5th edition red dragon, the adult red dragon, huge dragon is what it's classified as, chaotic evil, armor class of 19, less than Pathfinder, but as, we, as we've as we seen, I think, in, in our discussions of convergi- c- conversion of monsters, the AC in 5th edition is going to be lower anyway. Hit points, 256. So again, same, same area. 19d12, 17d12, plus plus 133. So that's, it's right in the same uh, range there, I think. It also has the bite, claw, and tail attacks, uh, and also the the fire breathing, the fire, the 60-foot cone of fire breath. But um, specifically, it has three legendary actions, which it can be it, it, one legendary option can be used at a time, and only at the end of another creature's turn. The dragon regains spent legendary actions at the start of its turn. So essentially every round it's going to be able to do things like a tail attack, or a wing attack, or some other things that aren't as interesting, like detecting things with its wisdom and stuff like that. But yeah, it's a, it's a formidable opponent obviously, we should talk about some of its base nature, as described for us in the Draconomicon. And I guess we'll start with with its its formative years, its birth process, which uh, just happens to be the page that this is still open to, so there you go. Um, The red dragons are ready to lay in 165 days, total incubation period for 660 days, and the size of the egg is medium medium-sized egg is uh, 4 foot in length, 60 pounds, and a hardness of, uh, hardness of 10, hit points of 20, uh, break DC of 15. As you might expect if you've been following the, the dragon birth process, the egg must be kept in an open flame or at a temperature of at least 140 Fahrenheit. Which is about sixty Celsius if you use Celsius as I do now, having moved to New Zealand and really gotten used to the whole Celsius thing. okay, so that's um that's their sort of, sort of birth process. Let's talk about the 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 typical red dragon, what you would expect if you were to encounter one, what kind of interests they have, what kind of lairs they dwell in and so on. Red dragons love the mountainous terrain. That's that's their primary dwelling, so they're not out in the deserts, they're not down in the swamps. They like the mountains. They, they will settle for hills, but primarily they, they do prefer to perch. They perch high above everything. They survey. So they survey what they consider their domain. Whether the surrounding area agrees with them, whether that, that that's their domain or not, is a different question. But that's that's what they prefer to do. This does bring them into conflict at times with other dragons who sort of like that kind of terrain. So you could imagine a white dragon and a red dragon coming to blows over uh, over the ownership of a of a specific region simply because white dragons obviously really prefer the 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 mountain peaks with the snow on them uh, and and red dragons would probably could could you could see a red dragon considering that part of part of its mountain range not not the white dragon's mountain range and then again the white dragon might be hidden well enough that the red dragon wouldn't even notice that it was there you'll also see copper dragons clashing for for the red dragons uh, for territory. Simply because, again, the the same kind of terrain is is something that appeals to both. You'd find a red dragon when it's not perching out in the open, surveying its domain, deep within a cave. So this is straight out of J.R.R. Tolkien. Arguably, this is very much the Smaug type of type of dwelling. It's a deep cave. They they prefer that it's well heated and and at least well insulated, but 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 the closer to a volcano that they can get, the better. And in fact, if we consult the 5th edition uh, uh, write-up about the red dragons, it it, it has a bunch of lair actions associated with, with red dragons. Uh, it says caves with volcanic or geothermal activity are the most highly prized red dragon lair, and and you'll have things like uh, magma eruptions from a point on the ground that the dragon can see within 120 feet, creating a 20 foot high, five foot radius ge- geyser of lava. Essentially, uh, a tremor shakes the lair for a 60 foot radius around the dragon. Volcanic gases form a cloud in a 20 foot radius sphere. So it's it's um it's pretty rough going if you trespass upon a red dragon's dwelling. I think you're you're in for a lot of environmental obstacles. You will also get, according to the fifth edition manual, uh, monster manual, you get regional effects as well. So you've got small earthquakes that are common within six miles of a dragon's lair. Water sources within a mile of the lair are supernaturally warm and tainted with sulfur. Rocky fissures within one mile of the dragon's lair form portals to the elemental plane of fire, allowing creatures of elemental fire into the world to dwell nearby. It's a really, really nice touch of of lore in the fifth edition monster manual. I really like those those touches that they throw in for for the the lair, sort of the the, the dwellings of, of, of dragons. It's it gives a lot of flavor. It it communicates to the DM what kind of extra touches to throw in as they describe a party nearing the the dwelling of a of a red dragon or, or a viny dragon, really. The red dragons are meticulous in their hoarding, in their in their collection of wealth. They know the exact amount that they have. They know the exact location. They know the exact value. And again, I, I feel like this is a little bunch of stuff straight out of Tolkien. Uh, I could be I could be imp- like I could be imposing that upon it, but I feel like this is exactly Smog, uh, knowing just in just sensing that that bilbo has has taken like one object from from his stash so it's uh it's straight out of that for me at least that's that's kind of how i see it and they they're very greedy red red dragons they are they are um they want they want all the wealth for themselves no question about it that's that's what they want the sizes of red dragons we're looking at for for instance a huge which in 5th edition, it identifies an adult as huge. You're looking at 55 feet in length, so that's an 18 foot body length, 16 foot neck length, 21 foot tail, uh, 8 foot body width, standing height of 12 feet, 75 feet maximum wingspan, and 30 foot minimum wingspan, 20,000 pounds. And if you're looking at an ancient red dragon, you're looking at, obviously, um, increases on up to colossal, which I guess wouldn't be that common anyway. But colossal can get truly colossal. Hundred and fifty foot wingspan, twenty two foot standing height, and so on. Red dragons are quite I would say prideful. They have a an inherent need to be sort of at the top of the of the chain, whether it is among all living creatures, or whether it is among the wealthy, or whether it is among other red dragons. So they will they will hear with great interest news about other red dragons to kind of keep tabs on how how the i guess the joneses are doing right the other how's the neighbor doing and am i doing better than them courtship obviously can be or as you could imagine can be a a a rather dicey um experience um most most would-be mates for a red dragon are also potential rivals so it's not really super easy to sort of get together long-term uh, to, to mate as a red dragon. And after, after mating, the, the younger in the relationship is generally left to guard the eggs. It doesn't matter the gender, it's, it's just the, the experience and age of the dragon. And once they've hatched, the red wormlings are left pretty much to fend for themselves, which again isn't all that surprising because I think everything to a red dragon is is sort of a rival, which is a tough life I imagine. But that's that's the path by nature that red dragons walk, and they're in combat. They are they're quite a clever opponent. They're they're very tactically intelligent. They're smart about how they fight. In other words, so they they keep aloft they fly a lot they're not the kind of dragon who's going to swoop down and try to terrify you just with its with its w- with its physical presence confident that you can't hit it it it's it's smarter than that it will stay aloft and attempt to kill you from above which certainly if you are if you've ever played D&D then you know that that flying opponents are are definitely difficult to to hit, it is just logistically difficult to to hit something that can swoop up and away from you out of range after each attack. I mean, again, to cite Tolkien, it would be it is analogous to trying to kill Smog, right? You've got all the archers on the ground volleying arrows at it, and they're just bouncing off of its of its skin, which I think is one of the most direct, the the, the most obvious kind of examples of how AC works. You, you've got an archer on the ground, you've got a dragon way up there. You roll maybe a 5. You can assume that your arrow didn't even reach the dragon at all. You roll a 19 for a total of something like, I don't know, 25, let's say, with some kind of bonus. It still doesn't hit. You can assume that the arrow reached the dragon and has bounced off the scales. It's that, what is it, that that, that 29 in 3.5, I guess it was just what, what was it 19 in fifth edition. So whatever it may be, it's it's that it's that target number that you're hitting where you're actually doing some damage to this 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 creature. Not easy, not easy to do, not easy to, to, to reckon with. So they're 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 attackers, but they're smart attackers. They're not the ones who are gonna try to just bowl you over because hey, it's a dragon. But it's also not one who is sneaky and and plotting like a blue dragon, for instance, lying in wait under the sand, or a green dragon, blending into the forest, tracking you, and that sort of thing. It's 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 out there, it's attacking, it's up there and attacking, and uh, it it's not going to relent, really, under any circumstance, as far as I can tell, from from the descriptions that I've that I'm reading in the monster manuals and the Draconomicon, I don't see that retreat at any point is an option. Um, that, that comparing it to something like, uh, for instance, a, a blue dragon, which will retreat eventually, if, if it has to, to preserve its own life. Whereas red dragon, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't even get the sense that they necessarily have have the capacity to admit that they're not going to win in the end. And that's just my take on it, based on what's written, but that's kind of that's the feel that I get. Obviously, there's a lot of great red dragon art out there. I mean, the covers of D&D books, cards in Magic the Gathering, Pathfinder book covers. There's just so much out there in the D&D landscape of, of red dragons, because I, I do, again, feel like they're kind of the default D&D dragon, and that brings a certain amount of affinity uh, for the red dragons, for me, maybe for other people, not so much. Maybe it's something that I've noticed that other people haven't noticed. Maybe it's something I'm making up. I don't know. But it's kind of the the classic D and D dragon for me, and and to some degree, I think the the chromatic dragons, the the color the colored dragons rather than the metallic dragons, are kind of the the. The the very very classic dragons of D and D, and so what I'm going to do I think is stop with the overview of the official dragon lore with with this with the red dragon the 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 last of the chromatics and get into the third party stuff which is why I started this in the first place and I may I may touch on the metallic dragons later I might sprinkle them throughout but I don't want to I, I don't think it's necessary to understand the metallic dragons. In order to take a look at the third-party dragons because the third dragons by and large are in monster manual type publications and are intended as foes whereas metallic dragons generally are the good aligned dragons and aren't really intended to be fought by 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 PCs so this will be the last of the of the official D&D open game license lore for the dragons next time we're gonna delve into third-party publications for all kinds of interesting alternative dragons. Stay tuned. I will talk to you then. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me uh, via email at klaatu at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as NotKla2. I'm on the Freenode Network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.